Welcome to Pulp, the portal to a thousand worlds. We have a special treat for you today. First, we have our inaugural entry into Ages of Steam and Power. This is the most ambitious, aspirational, ambidextrous show we have. It's got everything. The story from today's show is just a taste, pulled straight out of the middle. We wanted to show what kind of wonderment will be in store for you in Season 2. Then, we have our second entry from the Space and Future Things. This one is a futurist world where crime is punished, not with barbaric execution, not with prisons, but with a reduced lifespan. Well, it probably ends up just fine, right? But enough of that, on with the show. Let the wonderment unfold. Expedition to the Floating Isles The crew of the battle dirigible Heartless looked through the wall of impenetrable fog surrounding the treacherous Andali archipelago. They struggled to focus their eyes in the dense mist, searching for the sharp rocks that could send them into the churning waters below. Their mission was to scan for survivors of a mining vessel that had gone missing, the fifth such vessel that had disappeared without a trace. Most of the crew of the Heartless hoped to find nothing and report to safety. The islands of the Andali archipelago were rich in archotybalt, a metal that is lighter than most gases, which causes the islands to float a few hundred meters in the air. The practical use of this metal was not lost on the militaries of any of the great powers who scrambled to mine the precious metal from the islands as quickly as possible. The floating islands made scanning the fog all the more difficult. Every now and then a voice would cry out, Down ahead! Five points on the starboard bow! followed by the creaking and groaning of the dirigible's hull as the crew steered her clear of the floating harbingers of death. Since no reports returned as to why the mining vessels had gone missing, the crew could be looking for anything. Mine traps, an enemy cruiser, even stranded sailors might be a trap. For the past few months, the Archotybalt mining crews had ventured further and further into the archipelago, and had not been returning. Soon, none of the mining companies could find miners willing to make the trip. They raised the pay to sweeten the pot, and when the carrot didn't work, they tried the stick. Company guards were sent in to conscript the miners and dutifully gathered a conscripted crew, despite the complaints, petitions, and appeals of the villagers. And when these crews went missing, all hell broke loose. The streets were filled with the families of miners and their neighbors who demanded the end of the conscriptions. Empty platitudes from the mining company had fallen on deaf ears. Not even their appeal to the common goal of ending the war seemed to pacify the public. They wanted their families home. It was becoming clear that nothing 
No rotten, half-hearted excuse would satisfy the crowds. They wanted results. So the mining company sent a crew to evaluate the safety. As far as the public was concerned, they were on a fact-finding mission to discover what had happened to the crews and assess the safety of the mining operations. As far as the captain and the mining companies were concerned, they were only there to find an island that was the least trouble to mine, and return with news that they didn't find what they were looking for, but they did find a safer island to send the miners to. All they needed was a couple crews to return from this safer mining site, until the public became more comfortable with the company's acceptable death rate. The Heartless was one of the fastest and most maneuverable ships available to the mining companies. The tip of the balloon was covered in archetypalt and pointed at the bow to look like a sword. The bow of the undercarriage ship had a similar point, but less pronounced. As they both were made of archetypalt, it allowed the ship to be more heavily armored but also not weighed down and still highly maneuverable. Even with the best ship on the coast, they were helpless against the mist that kept them from seeing even the crew on the other side of the ship. A few days into the fog, the crew had begun to hear a groaning in the distance. At first it sounded like two ships slowly crashing into each other until they fell into the sea. But soon it began to sound more animal. Airman Sala, the one with the eye patch, the one outside crewmate that volunteered, the one that kept a faded picture on her at all times. The one that said nothing and did her work quietly. It was the one that saw it first. But she called it wrong. Land port ho! She yelled, and the ship began to swerve carefully and cautiously to starboard. But the dark blur that she saw through the fog kept following them, until she realized this was not land. Huge tentacles like tree trunks rose through the fog and snapped blindly at the craft. One grabbed Airman Hartley, and his screams echoed through the fog as he was tossed away. The crew began to congregate on the side opposite of where the tentacles appeared, only for more tentacles to appear on that side and grab the crew members, tossing them into the sea. Battle stations! The captain yelled, and the gun crews rushed haphazardly towards two machine gun turrets on both sides. One of the tentacles swiped through the port side and almost wiped out one of the port gun crews. One was tossed over the edge and the other was thrown across the deck. The other crews started to open fire in every which direction, trying their panicked best to shoot the attacking arms that appeared out of nowhere, just to disappear as easily. Don't shoot the tentacles, the captain yelled. Shoot below them. That's where the entire creature is. Airman Sala had abandoned her post. She had an idea. Her officer screamed threats to get her to return, but she ignored them and ran as quickly as she could to the munitions room under the rear deck. The piercing screams from the deck would have made her cover her ears if she wasn't so focused on getting all the disorganized mess out of her way in the room. Finally, she found what she was looking for. A timed barrel bomb for clearing out mines and emergencies. She picked it up with one arm and fumbled around in her pocket for her lighter as she ran out of the room. When she emerged on deck, she was greeted with the most gruesome sight. Crewmates crushed against the deck. Two of the gun turrets smoking and crumpled like paper. And the captain yelling commands like a desperate, trapped animal. 
Sala ran to the rear deck past the desperately pleading captain, pulled out her lighter, and stood at the railing at the end of the ship trying to light the barrel bomb. Her hands trembled as the fog behind the ship began to clear with the massive propeller pushing it away. In the clearing, a horrible face emerged. It was the size of the ship itself, and rising out of the water with a great tentacle beard. Huge tentacle arms the size of great redwood trees emerged from the water, and she saw its eyes lock onto her. She kept fumbling with the lighter, and the fuse finally lit, when she saw a tentacle reaching towards her. In all her panic, she kept her cool, and when the tentacle reached her and lifted her off the deck, she threw the barrel bomb down towards the creature. There was a deafening explosion followed by a loud and prolonged crunch, and in the death throes of the creature, its tentacles wrapped around the ship, crushed it like a candy wrapper. The balloon above it was punctured, and the ship was going down with all hands. All hands but one that was flung far from the wreckage. When Airman Solo woke up, she immediately coughed out the water from her lungs onto the beach she had washed up on. When she looked landward, where she might expect seaside cliffs, she saw a bizarre rock formation. The head of a giant lizard carved into the precipice rose above her to terrifying heights. Far off in the distance, she heard the mechanical drone of turbine engines, the drone which should have been familiar to her. She knew the low sound of the engine quartet that belonged to an airship, but this was higher pitched, many more than just four. Was this a fleet of battleships? Was this the cause of the disappearance of those many mining crews? The strange but familiar sound revealed itself soon enough. Out from behind the mountains emerged a formation of Warhawk fighter planes. They were still off in the distance, but something seemed strange about them, like the cockpit was too small. No, more like something was too big in the pilot's seat. Then she heard a voice, strange and garbled. There she is. And she turned to face the origin of the voice. She saw it, but rubbed her eyes in disbelief. A small herd of velociraptors had emerged on the beach and were making their way towards her. She forced her legs to move as fast as they could on the waterlogged sand away from the herd, but they were gaining fast. She looked up as the fighters flew above her and finally caught a good look at the pilots. They, too, were velociraptors. She looked behind her and the herd was on her heels. The island of beasts had claimed its latest victim. How about it, folks? That mysterious island is just a small part of what we have in store for you. Not only will there be fantastic beasts or uh, creatures, there will be revolutions, heists, political intrigue. For more such tastes of what is to come, subscribe on Patreon and gain access to another story from Ages of Steam and Power called The Great Zeppelin Heist. We are so creative with our show titles here, that could be anything. Who knows what will happen in a story called The Great Zeppelin Heist? So go on over to Patreon, become a patron, and get access to that story. Find out what happens in The Great Zeppelin Heist. But enough of that, 
The story is a good and long one, so sit back and enjoy the show. Let the Wonderman unfold. The Great Sieve of Time. The courtroom maintained a level hum of busy work, as the journalists of New Seattle absent-mindedly took notes, and the few people contained within the room carried out their duties as necessary. The jurors, having given their verdict, and thus provided the minimum attention required of them, had moved on to planning their routes home and what they would be having for dinner. The judge then turned to the defendant, and, with a sigh, began her speech. Decades ago, we were cemented in a hopeless and doomed position, with skyrocketing crime rates and prisons packed as slum houses. When we, as a society, began to look at new ways of solving age-old problems, we partnered with the brightest minds from the private sector to develop an innovative penal system. Instead of barbaric prisons, we began to use cutting-edge advances to reduce a certain amount of years of a person's life. With no prisons, costs to the taxpayers plummeted, and crime dropped to almost nothing. Because we don't live long enough, the defendant said under her breath. Her public defendant elbowed her to remain respectfully quiet. What did she care? She was already convicted and it seemed like the judge was making the case for maximum sentence. Fine her money she didn't have? Take away what little time she had left? Go on and take it, she thought. What am I going to do with it anyway? The judge scowled after her outburst, but then continued her pontification. We had ushered in a new age of stability. But in recent years, crime has reared its ugly head again, and the new generation has no appreciation of what we have accomplished. Our system works, yet you, Navira Anderson, have chosen to operate outside of this system and take what you think is justice into your own hands. Twice, with the last sentence being less than a week ago. Not only have you chosen to act on your own authority to shorten someone's life, this is the third instance where you have chosen to act on your own and not to trust the system. As such, you are hereby deemed a menace to society, and I am entitled to give you a sentence closer to what you deserve. I myself am limited to dole out any more than 50 years, but make no mistake, an ungrateful criminal such as yourself deserves much more. Having been found guilty of murder in the first degree, I sentence you to 50 years reduction. She slammed down her gavel as she gave her sentence. Report to corrections by 5 p.m. today or a warrant will be issued wherein officers will be given the order to dole out time reduction on sight. Navira remained standing, facing the judge in unbowed defiance. You are dismissed from my courtroom, the judge said, and retreated to her chambers. The district attorney's officers on either side of the aisle were congratulating each other and discussing where they wanted to go after for drinks. Navira was born 26 years ago, but her AAS, or age adjusted for sentencing, was 76. 
She narrowly avoided having a few decades taken off for bank fraud when she and her family were at risk of getting evicted from their apartment and found a creative way to pay rent. But the Bureau of Justice made up for it by having 50 years taken off when she was charged for a similar financial crime when her father died at the ripe old age of 32, the oldest of any of their relatives, and his children accrued his debt. So, with an AAS of 76, 50 years more would be a death sentence. And the judge knew it. I tried my best, but you sure weren't doing yourself any favors, her defense attorney said as he packed up his paper in his briefcase. Yeah, it must be my fault, Navira replied. Her attorney looked at his watch without responding. I'm a little bit late for my meeting thanks to the judge deciding to make this place a classroom. You okay making it to corrections? His feet didn't move, but the rest of his body seemed to jitter with nervous energy. Sure thing, Navira said, as they both made their way down the aisle. As your lawyer, I do have to remind you that if you don't show, they'll send the collection agents. He said again, looking at his watch, and hurried off. Time is a valuable commodity, even for those who have not had significant reductions. Navira was by no means going to voluntarily waltz herself into corrections to be withered away into dust. Instead, she waited for her lawyer to turn the corner and headed down a hallway where she knew she could discreetly exit. She wouldn't give a damn if her worthless attorney was going to regret it. It's not like he had any time taken from him. Besides, she didn't have much time left, and if she was going to die, it would be on her own terms. She tried to blend in with the crowd on the way out, but the guard at the door of the courtroom caught her by the arm as she passed. Your lawyer asked me to take you to time reduction, he said. Oh, not necessary. I was just on my way, she said, as she tried to scoot past him. Oh, it's no problem for me, the guard said as he grabbed her firmly by the arm. I'm headed that way myself. They began to lead her by the arm until she followed willingly. The two made their way to the basement, where time reduction was conducted out of the view of the public. She was sat down in a metal chair with restraints on the arms and legs as a precaution. She knew better than to throw a fit at this late stage. Once she sat down, the attendant quickly administered the time reduction treatment, a quick shot in the arm, and gave her the usual speech. You know the drill, you have about 24 hours before the full effects become apparent, although you'll feel it more and more along the way. Don't operate any vehicles or heavy machinery. If this is your third strike, your next offense will result in full-time reduction upon apprehension. Yeah, I'll be extra careful now, Navira said. There's no need for the attitude, miss, the attendant said before moving on to the next victim. Exit on your right will take you to the bus stop. I know the way just fine, killer, she replied, and left through the door before the attendant could reply. She had to wait about 25 minutes for the bus, which, for the buses in this city, was almost no time at all. But for someone with an AAS of 76 and climbing, it was an eternity. It might have been in her head, but as she disembarked from the bus and made her way up the stairs at the train station, she could have sworn her back was complaining more than usual. As it was, she could feel it in her knees. She could feel them groaning every minute of the way. She had been feeling it ever more in her back and hips. Her memory would fade in and out. She had lost quite a bit of hair and had begun to slump her shoulders. Her train arrived and as she embarked, she went over what she needed to do in her head. First things first, she had to go back to her closet space shack of an apartment to get some things together. 
The kind of things you don't bring to a courtroom, you know what I mean? Then she'd have to see the wise man. The first guy who would know anything around there. She knew who the victim was that she was supposed to have killed. But she didn't know her. She was one of the many people that Navira never talked to in her life. The prosecution presented evidence, including items from Navira's apartment, that they found at the scene of the crime. There was no way that anyone had gotten into her apartment, as she had as many locks as Artie, her property manager, had open maintenance tippets. Also, she had never set foot in that part of the building. Then, there was the collection agents that suspiciously were at her door before the body even went cold. Usually, they take a week to respond to a homicide in her neighborhood. All of it was fishy, all right, but it still wasn't much. She'd have to start from scratch with word on the street. And for that, she would have to start with the wise man. When she finally made it to the hollow, she stopped at a street stand for some tibs and noodles on her way to the apartment. Well, it be, kid? The vendor asked without looking up. The kid in front of him had deep wrinkles starting to show. Her shoulders were hunched, and she walked with sweeping steps to account for the pain in her hips, which made the pain in her back even worse. Large bowl, extra noodles, she said. You got cash? The vendor said, again, not looking up. She would have tried to pay for it with credit, but since her days had been so drastically reduced, her credit was no good. A while ago, a law was passed that depreciated your credit the more years you had subtracted. Of course, it was aimed at reducing financial crimes, but everyone knew the real reason. When you don't have any time left, and all your relatives that would inherit the debt are gone, well, what's to stop you from racking up all the debt and going out in a blaze of glory? As soon as the banks started to realize that this would drop their profit margins by at least 2%, they bought the appropriate legislation to protect their cash farms. So there it was. She'd have to see what was still left in her apartment. Although, since she'd been gone for some time sitting in jail, the chances weren't too good of anything being remotely edible. She hoped none of the renters would be there. She didn't have time to settle affairs with the lease, even though she was the only one on it, and they were, as far as the landlord was concerned, non-existent until it was time to pay rent. But by that time came around, she'd be long gone. She wouldn't have to worry about her family. She was the last of her family. Her mother died when she was young. Too many public intoxications. And to be frank, the people she might call friends weren't worth saying goodbye to anyway. She really only had time to set one thing straight. And that would be to find the bastard that framed her for murder. Lucky enough, there was no one in the hallways trying to flag her down for a conversation. She had free reign of the place and wasted no time. She took stock of anything in the apartment she could use. There was her brother's old pistol. The mods weren't regulation, of course, but what were they going to do? Reduce her time? By the time her brother had got his hands on it, he was already on his third strike. It was a dead man's gun. There was the diamond ring that he had stolen that gave him his last strike. She might as well keep that around. Never know when something like that will come in handy. She took another quick look around. There really wasn't anything else. Dishes in the sink. Paraphernalia littered around on the junk that passed for a coffee table. Bits of trash that had been brought in with hopes that one day it would prove useful. 
Nothing else, really. No time to find out otherwise. As she headed out, she ran into the old property manager. I say old for this place, where few folks make it past their thirties. This man had almost made it into his forties. An astounding feat for the area. I guess that's what you get working for a landlord. Hey, Navira, he called out after her. I've heard some things about the same people coming and going from your apartment. Now, I don't mind if you're subletting, but Mr. Ford won't like it a bit, and I gotta know. He was cut short. Artie, I don't have fucking time for this right now, she said, and limped to the rest of the way down the stairs. Something was off about him. She didn't know what. She also didn't have the time to figure it out. First stop was the wise man who sat at the corner of 5th and Express. If anyone would know anything, it would be him. All information that was worth a damn, he knew. And anything that wasn't worth anything, he knew enough to know it was worthless. At the corner, a kid sat playing a harmonica. He wore a trench coat that went down to his ankles. A little big for him, and the bottoms were a bit tattered off. The rest of his outfit was a hodgepodge of mismatched this and that. Aren't you supposed to be at corrections? The kid said between winds through his harmonica. Aren't you supposed to be in school? She replied, and sat down on one of the upturned buckets next to him. You have the kind of time to be doing this? He went right back to playing his harmonica. Maybe that's why they call him the wise man. He knows the true value of time, and wouldn't make anyone who was short on it waste any on him. You want to know who set you up? He asked, between phrases on his harmonica. How do you know it was a setup? She replied. If that's not a setup, I'm a billionaire cop, he said. I don't know much about this one, though. Everybody's tight-lipped about it. But from what I've heard, you want to check out Badger Row. 294398. Ask for the man in the blue sweater and don't say shit. As soon as his mouth stopped making words, it returned to the harmonica to breathe a few notes before it was separated again. One more thing. Well, you probably already know this. The collection agents have been sent after you. I'd say stay away from your apartment or anything else too familiar. Already? I haven't even done anything yet, she said. Told you it was a setup, the wise man replied. He was more forthcoming than usual. Any other time she had to use his services, he would be coy until she offered something. I don't really have anything to give you for it, she said, fingering the ring in her pocket. I know you still have the ring from your brother's job, but I don't need it. His phrases on the harmonica became low and slow. You never give anything for free, she said. I mean, I'm not complaining if this is legit, but what's the catch, kid? This was indeed a rarity. This time, he stopped playing his harmonica fully and looked up at her, slightly annoyed. I never give anything for free to folks that will survive long enough to say anything. No sense in calling in a debt to folks that have nothing. And I won't have anybody running out of time with a debt on my account. Ain't no way to live or die. After he'd finished speaking, he put his head back down and continued playing his harmonica. Better hurry, he added, and never spoke to her again. Navira dropped some coins in his bucket and moved on. Although, moving would be putting it kindly. Her hips were hurting worse than ever, and her breathing was more and more like a lifelong smoker, even though she never touched the stuff. It was her intention to live as long as possible. She ate well, exercised regularly, meditated drank plenty of water, and never smoked or put anything else in her body that would lower her life expectancy. She took advantage of every public health initiative and philanthropic effort to improve the lives of the less fortunate, 
Now here she was, smoker's lung, high blood pressure, her body slowly shutting down. It was like all those philanthropic and public health initiatives were just a new tool for folks to turn a blind eye. Like if they could say, we're doing everything we can and they still commit all these crimes. They do it to themselves, really. So off she moved to Club Franco, Badger Row. The dirtiest club with the most foul company to be had in the entire city. Also known as a damn good time. And on the other goddamn side of the city. Because of course it would be on the day that she had the least amount of time. She hopped the fare, lucky enough not to get caught, and took a train across the city where she snuck through the service entrance and on through the club until she found her man in the back of the lounge. Blue sweater, just like the wise man said. Navira knew him just by sight. His name was Tiny, and he ran the place. Tiny just about took up the whole couch and had two girls on either side of him that looked like they were in a weight loss competition with a skeleton. Their eyes were glazed over and had that dead stare that any speedhead has. Their wraith-like frames swayed like low-powered automatons and programmed repetition to the music. I heard you might be on your way, he said with a vibrant chuckle that failed to breathe life into the two skeletons on either side. Heard you were looking for a little vengeance. Little payback, huh? He chuckled again. Who said anything about payback? I just need a name. I don't need payback, she said. There was no time for these kind of games, but with a guy like Tiny, you play the game or you don't get the prize. What else do you need the name for, huh? What, do you want to play a quick game of dice before you get your wick trimmed? (laughs) He laughed again and took a hit from his hookah. How does everybody and their goddamn dog know about this? Navir demanded in frustration. Everybody knows everything around here, kid. Information comes cheaper when people don't have time left. Speaking of, what do you have to offer me for this name? Navira fingered the ring in her pocket again. She considered haggling, but she was tired and didn't have the motivation or the time to waste, and held out the ring. This is all I got, she said. Tiny motioned for one of the security guards, a couple of gorillas and designer jackets, to bring it over to him. He took a few minutes, and probably a couple more than he needed, to look it over before uttering a name. Artemis Grant, the man said, and continued smoking calmly without laughter. Artie? she repeated. My idiot property manager? Correct. Tiny replied and continued smoking. The little weasel of a property manager? I paid you good to have to go back home? If you want me to repeat myself, it will cost extra, and I don't take credit. At his prompting, the two gorillas guarding the door moved forward. All right, I get it. I'm leaving you, cheap bastard, she said, and headed out. Tiny stood up. That would get you a death sentence if you weren't dead already. Navira was seething, but she knew if she said anything else, he would complete her sentence then and there. So she left and headed home. On the train ride back, her hips really started to scream at her. 
Fortunately enough, there was a single spot, but after one stop, the entire bench was overcrowded and pushing her into all manner of uncomfortable positions. Sitting down may have eased the pain in her hips, but it did no favors to her back. She tried to distract herself by going over what little information she'd gotten from, from Tiny. She could feel herself slipping. It was harder to stay focused. She kept asking herself what Artie would have to gain by setting her up, but nothing came. Her brain couldn't focus. By the time she reached her stop, she resigned herself to just getting what she needed when she found him. The finding proved not to be too difficult, as he was standing in the hallway of her apartment, right where she had left him, skulking around looking to catch someone in some unapproved activities, like subletting, so he could shake down tenants for money that they barely had. Oh, hey, Navira. Did you come back to tell me the names of those freeloaders staying at your place? I had a good feeling about you from the beginning. His Weasley petitions were cut short by the frail hand she held at his throat. Fortunately for her, this required no great feat of strength. You set me up, you little rat bastard. Now for once you're gonna pay, she yelled. The little property manager let out a pitiful squeal and squirmed like a snake. I, it w wasn't all me, I, I, I swear, he choked out. Mis Mr. Ford made me do it. He said he was going to fire and evict me if I didn't. He had instantly transformed from roaming the halls with a sense of power to a sniveling puddle of excuses smeared on the wall. Why, she demanded. Why? And shook him by the collar until his head hit the old molding on the wall, which had finally fallen off as he hit it. I, I don't know. She slammed his head on the wall again and was met, again, with a pitiful whining cry. I swear I don't know. You'll have to ask him, if you have enough time, he said. The collection agents have already been here, he coughed. Twice. She slammed him against the wall again, this time knocking him out. After he collapsed on the floor like the limp snake he was, she rooted through his pockets and took his wallet and a few ID cards. Violent theft like that could get you 20 years taken off, but today, she had a blank check. When she left the building, a squad of collection agents were waiting for her at the end of the block. The sergeant called out for her to halt, but she bolted in the opposite direction as fast as her pained hips, knees, and back would take her into the nearest alley. Just her luck, the alleyway she happened to choose was a straight dead end with nothing more than a couple of trash dumpsters. The heavy clomp of collection agent's boots sounded from around the corner, and she turned to the only option she had left. Without the luxury of time to maintain her dignity, she opened the lid to the nearest dumpster and climbed in as quickly as her creaking joints would let her. She did her level best to close the top as gently as she could to avoid alerting the guards to her place of refuge. After the dust had settled, she listened as best she could for any clues as to the whereabouts of her pursuers. The sound of their boots clomped around the alley around the trash bin, and the sound of their radios echoing in their earphones rang clear as day, loud enough for someone close enough to hear. For a moment, she was unsure how close they actually were. Normally, she would be able to hear every word clearly, even five feet away. But as she sat in the bin, the din of the streets faded into a dull coagulation of sound. She needed to know they were gone, but there was so much plastic surrounding her that she could not possibly move without making a sound. She waited until she heard nothing at all. Making a move now was better than wasting time she didn't have. She moved as slowly as she could, every limb in the most uncomfortable position possible. She cracked the lid of the dumpster, and to her relief, there was no one in the alleyway. 
The street had resumed its regular busy nature as if it had never been disturbed by the imposing sight of the collection agents. She did her best to climb out, but her leg had fallen asleep, and the strength in her limbs had atrophied so that pulling herself out of the trash was suddenly a near-impossible task. She eventually was able to lift her leg over the side and roll over, collapsing on the ground. She laid there for a moment, waiting to accumulate the energy to get up. It never came. It dawned on her that she would never feel any more energy than she felt at that moment. She started with an arm, then a leg, and so on and so forth, every joint complaining along the way until she was up and moving. It probably wasn't a good idea to stop for food with those vultures lurking around, but she was starving, and she really wanted to see the look on his face when she put down cash. She walked up to the same vendor that had refused her only a few hours earlier. You smell like shit, the vendor said, while still stirring the noodles on his pan. Large bowl of noodles, extra tibs, extra onions, she said, savoring the victory. You sure you can pay, he said. You think this'll be enough, she said, slamming all the money from Artie's wallet down the counter. Probably, he replied, and got to work on her order. As underwhelming a disappointment as it was not to hear him grovel at her feet in an apology, at least the tibs and noodles were exactly what she thought they would be. As perfect as the noodles were for her in that moment, she could not fully savor it. She needed a plan to get to Ford's house, with all the collection agents floating around like a herd of fruit flies looking for a right bounty before it expires for good. As she wolfed down her tibs and noodles, she looked through Artie's wallet again. This time found a taxi card. She called a taxi for the first time in her life. You smell like shit, the driver said when he pulled up. She ignored him, but he didn't seem like he had that much time either. Where'll it be? It was at this moment that Navira realized she didn't actually know where she was going. G- give me a second. Take your time, I'm on the clock, the driver said. She fumbled through Artie's wallet trying to find any clue. And what felt like the first real stroke of luck in years, she found Mr. Ford's card had a residential address on it. Somebody got sloppy. She gave the address to the driver and lay back and took a nap in the car. When the driver woke her up, letting her know she was here, the feeling of relief soon faded as she began to count the private guards making their rounds. We'll need to sit here for a minute, she told the driver. You're dying. In half a minute, she counted 12 guards, which meant there were likely at least twice that many, including those wandering the halls. Ford may have expected some sort of retaliation, or maybe he was just paranoid. Most rich folks didn't get there by being kind, and the ones that were born into it usually grew up so mean, somebody like him was bound to have some enemies. She looked in her pocket. She had the used train ticket to get home from the courthouse. How long ago that seemed. She also still had the rest of Artie's wallet aside from the money, but her luck had run out. She'd have to think her way through this one. Card's about done for the driver said. All right, I'll get out here, she said. She made sure to face away, so as not to give the guards a good look at her. She hobbled around to the back until she saw a plumber's van. Back doors were open, and only the driver was there. She walked up and grabbed a pair of coveralls from the back. With all her hobbling, though, she was about as quiet as a hippopotamus. You gonna pay for those, the driver said, looking in the rearview mirror. She still had Artie's wallet, but nothing in there had any value. She tossed it to him anyway. There's at least a hundred on each of the cards. She did her best to keep a straight face. She knew for sure the cards in there were worthless. Today, honesty didn't pay. The driver said nothing, which meant she had to go ahead. 
She grabbed a pair, put them on immediately, and walked through the service entrance of Ford's mansion. After making her way into the house, she was still accosted by the butler. She said she had arrived to work on a busted pipe, but the butler objected. Now listen, boss, you can send me away if you want. All I know is I got a call to check a pipe. So if you want your boss mad at you when his shower ain't the right temp, go ahead and send me away. Butler finally acquiesced, and Navira walked up the stairs to Ford's office, which the butler was kind enough to direct her to. The last step was the easiest. She simply opened the door and walked in. And there he was, sitting in his study, staring out the window at the clouds. Something only rich people with all the time they could buy would do. Those in the hollow had no such time to look at clouds. He rose from his office chair and turned as if he was expecting someone. But when he saw her, his expression changed. Who are you and what business do you think you have with me? He asked as he seated himself in another, larger chair and put one ankle on his knee as if he were being interviewed on a panel. I'm supposed to be serving your sentence today. That should tell you who I am and what my business is, she replied. Ah, you're that woman Artemis told me about. I should have known it was you by the smell. At this insult, she pulled her gun and kept it at her side. Ah, threats, he said and laughed. Do you know what it's like to have your time reduced on the spot? It's not the relatively painless procedure they use when they reduce your time at court. No, you can't fit that sort of sophistication in the barrel of a gun. You get time reduced on the spot? It's like having your insides torn apart slowly. The voluntary test subjects from the corrections reported that they felt time was being stretched out as they experienced their time reduction. Ironic, isn't it? As he spoke, he waved his hands in the way people do when they're accustomed to public speaking. But Navira didn't have time for this. Does all this have a point? she asked. Ah, yes, of course, he replied. I forgot your kind is a bit more pushy since you criminal types don't have as much time as I do. Time is an hourglass for the hardworking people like me, and a sieve for the lazy such as yourself. My point, of course, is that you were a dead woman. And if you're going to die, it would behoove you to turn yourself in rather than shoot me and have your time reduced on the spot. I thought it would be the polite thing to do to let you know what really is in store for you. Besides, you've had your third strike. You really don't have any goodwill with the courts now. He folded his arms as if he'd just made checkmate. I only want to know one thing, she said. By all means, ask. You've made it this far. It's only fair. He replied with more congeniality than she expected. Why? Why frame me? I have nothing to do with you. She felt like there was something missing as he began laughing at her question. Why? He echoed. I had received word from my contacts in the collection agency that this woman had been messaging others in the building about a rent strike. Surely even you can see the practicality of the matter. It's best to nip these things in the bud. The job had to be done. I asked Artemis, who was more than willing for a little bonus coupled with a few threats, and I certainly wasn't going to waste such loyalty. Not when there are expendables at my disposal. If I were caught doing what I did, I would have to use favors with my judge, and that I would rather save for a more pressing event if it ever happened. That's what you people don't realize. You have to make the best use of your resources. Which is why you people will always be poor. Navira had had enough. She held the pistol at arm's length, but she could feel the strength in her arm giving way, and retracted it to her hip. 
Those sentences weighing you down, eh? Ford said with a chuckle. I doubt your hand would be steady enough to aim for the ground. She pulled the trigger until she heard the repeated click of dry fire. Ford looked shocked after the first shot, but his consciousness didn't last longer than that as he collapsed on the floor. How's that for reduced time, she said, and seated herself in his chair, watching the clouds as she waited for the collection agents to arrive and reduce what little time she had left. The next day, the news outlets chattered on about one story and one story only. The brutal murder of a leading industry tycoon and brilliant philanthropist, gunned down by a nameless criminal. The pundits railed on about how these criminal types have no sense of responsibility. Others mourned the loss of such a great man at the hands of the people he was trying to help. Soon think pieces were published about how long Soon think pieces were published about how much it would take to really crack down on all the crime in the hollow and how many collection agents would be needed to prevent this sort of tragedy from ever happening again. Then, the next day, a politician was caught with a mistress whose age was not reported in the press, and everyone forgot about the murder of Mr. Ford and the nameless criminal that shot him. See, I told you everything would be fine. <clears throat> What's that? What? Oh, oh, oh. See? I told you it would go sideways. Anyway, that's it for today, folks. Tune in two weeks from today for our first entry from Hard Boiled Stories. And while you're wondering what to do with yourself the next week, go check out Collective Action Comics. They've been a good friend of the show, and their show is the stuff of legends. Comic book legends, that is. <laughs> <laughs>